sorry, I need to grab this really quick. Thank you for the introduction. Um, so if you didn't catch it, my name is Robert Hudson. Uh, it's really good to have all of y'all here. And honestly, Matt asked me if I could, if he wanted me to get somebody, if he wanted to get somebody for me to lead worship. But honestly, I really, really enjoy leading and worshiping with you. Uh, so I said, no, I want to do the whole thing. Uh, so, um, yeah, I've been leading worship here at Redeemer for almost a year coming up on. Uh, it's been a great opportunity for us and something that we prayed about of how God could use me to do ministry uh, for his church and the opportunity came up and uh, as a family, we prayed about it and we took it. Um, so Redeemer Fellowship Church has four key values. Matt preached on our first one, which is our foundation, which is Christ last week. And so the four key values, though, are Christ, character, community, commission, um, and they're there because the goal is to submit everything that we do to those values. Uh, it's to submit all ideas, uh, any kind of outreach to the values of Christ, character, community, and commission. But it's also to show the outside world, what does Redeemer Fellowship value? We value Christ, character, community, commission. But it's also to tell you that as well. Uh, and if you get involved with Redeemer, I think that you will see that. Um, when I was told that I was going to be preaching on character, I must admit I was a tad nervous because of the topic. Um, other people see things in you that you yourself don't see, so thank God for that and the encouragement that Matt has brought to that. Um, but my prayer is that God would place any distraction that I might bring to the side and that anything that I say uh, that doesn't abide in the Word of God, uh, that you wouldn't hear it, that he would take that away, but also that he would send his spirit to empower you by the truth in Scripture and whatever is rooted in Scripture. Uh, so before we open up God's word, um, I'm going to pray that uh, God would open our eyes, open our hearts, and reveal his Scripture to us. Father, we, uh, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for a time to come and open your word. Uh, we praise you for your word. It is the means in which you've decided to communicate with us. It is what you've chosen to reveal to us, and we praise you for it. Father, I pray that in, in giving the word, that you would send your spirit to empower me, but also in, empower the hearts and the minds of the individuals, that they would receive the scripture, uh, and that your spirit would convict of sin, and that it would lead them to a genuine repentance. And Father, I pray that uh, you, don't, you don't count the leaders' sins of this church against the brothers and sisters here. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this text made my week very hard. Uh, I will just throw that out there. Because uh, honestly, I'm not your guy for this text. Like, I don't, I don't really level up to it. I just don't, the character part. Um, but we're going to be in John 15, 1 through 11. Uh, and, and it reads, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, I am not going to be able to preach verse by verse. I'm going to be doing a little bit of jumping around, but I will try my best to guide you so that you can follow along in in your scriptures. We will be doing a lot of text out of John, so if you want to keep open your Bibles and flip through, Feel free to do that. I would encourage you to do that. But if not, that's okay as well. But my first point is dead branches. So the context of this scripture is that you have Jesus, and it's it's the night before he is to be crucified. uh, And he's talking with his disciples in the upper room. Um, Earlier, in in John chapter 13, uh, Jesus is telling the disciples that One of them is going to betray him. They ask who it is, and Jesus says, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. And after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. So up until this moment, we, we had no idea that Judas Iscariot was the one who was going to betray Jesus. If you're in the context of the story, you, you have no idea that it's Judas. Um, because there's no clear evidence in Scripture that says it is Judas who is going to betray Christ. Judas has spent the last three years, just like the other disciples, with Jesus, eating with him, learning underneath him, Uh, doing ministry with him, casting out demons in his name, and seeing the mighty works that were done by the hands of Christ. So first-hand witness to the ministry of Jesus. And the point is, is that there, there are going to be dead branches that appear to be attached to the vine, that have this appearance of true union with Christ. But I want to make something clear before we continue on. There is no such thing as a branch being truly alive and truly abiding in Christ and then being casted off the vine. That is not what this is communicating. It's not communicating that you can lose your salvation. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a true branch and you abide in Christ, you will never be casted out. The genuineness of your attachment is based solely in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way that you're attached is Jesus. And there's nothing that we can do to reverse or add to that work. 
Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It would be incredibly inconsistent for the eternal, all-knowing God to not be able to finish a work in the saints that he has saved. It doesn't make sense. John 10, 27-29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Eternal life started at the moment that you became a Christian. That's when eternal life started. It's not when you die. It's when, when Christ converted you and changed your heart. And you don't leave eternal security, come back to eternal security. Leave eternal security, come back to eternal security. You are eternally secured when you are in Christ. So back to the point of the dead branches, though. There will be dead branches that seem to be alive and are not. They will be at your place of work. They will be at your schools. Even if you go to seminary, they will be at your schools. They will be in ministry with you. They will make Christian music. They will write Christian books. Some will be in your family. Some will sit in these pews, and some will be members of this church. That's what the Bible is giving. Judas was that close. Some, or should I, or should I say many, will be baptized. Many will take communion. Many will own Bibles. Many will come to your Bible study that you host. Many will come to nights of worship that you have. Many will come to church. Many will be dead branches. So I'm not just talking about what you might would call the nominal Christian. I'm talking about the Christian that appears to be biting, but he's not there. He's not bearing fruit. He might appear to be bearing fruit, but he's not truly because he's not abiding in Christ and Christ is not abiding in him. Salvation has not come to that person. Why? Why, why does it appear that dead, why do dead branches appear to bear fruit? And it is because there's no salvation. There's no abiding. There's no Christ. There's no Christ in him. And to show evidence of this in, in Scripture, of these branches that I'm speaking of, this belief that's not saving belief. John 2, 23-25. Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. John 6, 66-71. After this... Many of his disciples, disciples, there's a, there's a belief there. If you're a disciple of something, you, there's a belief in that, something. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And probably the only good thing that Simon Peter said in the account of the Gospels, 
He answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter gives a fantastic example of what abiding is. Especially in a situation where people are not abiding. People are not staying. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now that last part that we see there, that's just a write-in from the writer. If you're actually in the context of the scripture, you don't see that. Like, like I said earlier, if you are the disciples, you're not seeing that Judas Iscariot is the one who is going to betray them. So we're going to do one more. John 8.30, this, this, this is a section where Jesus is saying to the people that he is the light of the world. Uh, in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So you might would get there, read that, and then be like, this is pretty positive. Like People believe in Jesus and believe in his message. Uh, but then it goes to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They continue on to say that We've never been enslaved to anything. Our father's Abraham. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. So you have this, you have this I mean, it's literally like ten verses. You have... Belief, now we want to kill you. It's not a belief that saves, clearly. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. And Jesus Christ goes on to tell them that their Father is the devil. There's a very real sense that there is a belief that is not a saving belief. The second point is salvation, I and you, and you and me. John 15, 4, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So through some of my studies of this, I listened to a few different people uh, John MacArthur was one of them, and his main point on this abide thing is abide means abide. It just means stay. You've made a profession of faith. You stay in that profession of faith. You abide in that which you originally said was salvation. If you proclaim Christ Jesus is Lord and you are saved, abide. So at the time of salvation, a, a union happens. Uh, God dwells in a person. God takes up residence in a person. Um, so, my question to that is, why would God, the all-knowing God, choose to live in a sinner? I mean, we have experienced some of the negative that comes with associating with so-and-so or being neighbors with you-know-who. You, you've gotten some of that at times. Now, I believe that at, at the core of every individual's heart is complete depravity and a hatred towards God, hatred of God. But, as Christians, our flesh does a terrible job at showing the goodness to God to those people. And you can probably think of it even in your workplace. Your workplace, your schools, your neighbors. You know, it's funny, like we do missions, 
and we're all about missions, but we don't go see our neighbors. They live right across the street, but we'll fly across the country. It doesn't make sense. It's not consistent. So our flesh does a really bad job at showing the goodness of God to others that leads them to this more hatred of God. They already hate God. They're already there, but now it's, it's more because of who God has chosen to associate it with. But God chooses to intimately become involved with the people he saves. Why? Because God knows that if he doesn't empower us, if, if the flesh, if the original sin of Adam isn't put to death, we, we will bring nothing but dishonor to God's name. We can't do anything. That's, that, that's why salvation is set up the way that it is. God has to do all the work. You can do nothing. Sanctification is the exact same way, the way you walk through life. God does the work in you. I'm not denying that there's this reality that you need to submit to the scriptures. You need to submit to the commandments. But the reality is, is that if you're not indwelt, if you're not saved, if you're not empowered by the Spirit, you can't bear fruit. It's not going to happen. You have to be saved first in order to bear. There will be no bearing of fruit in an individual if God doesn't dwell and if God doesn't empower. Romans 8.10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. If you're saved, Christ is in you. 1 John 4, 13 and 16, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. I mean, salvation and union with Christ and being indwelt in the Holy Spirit, that's amazing because the fact that Jesus Christ would humble Himself enough to leave the right hand of the Father, communion with God, come down, submit himself to the Father's wrath, die on the cross, thereby saving sinners, is amazing in and of itself, in a sinless body. But then he, de he decides to dwell in a sinful body and work in a sinful body, all to bring glory to his name. If you're saved, God lives in you. God is empowering you to abide and to bear fruit. God is working in you. Verse 4 is, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's the thing. A vine can live without branches. A branch cannot live without a vine. It'll die. If you do not abide, if you are not saved, you will be thrown away like a branch and wither. You will be gathered. and You will be thrown into the fire and burned. He's speaking of wrath. Instead of Christ receiving the wrath for you, you will receive the wrath of God. But not only is, is God at work in you, but he is also at work outside of you. Just in case you missed it, uh, it says, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser, and then he goes to explain two, two branches. The vine is Christ, the vine dresser is the father God, and the branches that are abiding are those who God has saved, and the branches who aren't abiding are those that are not saved. So we have this, verse 1 and 2, um, 
really quick, that point is God's painful method of bearing fruit. Verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So we have this image of God the Father pruning his branches. Pruning those who are attached to the vine. And just to define really quickly, because we don't grow grapes in Indiana. At least I don't think we do. Uh, just to define really quickly, pruning is done in a season. A season. Here's the thing, though, with a season. Uh, if you live here, I say we have three seasons. Technically, we have four. Uh, you have uh, maybe winter, spring, summer, fall. Okay? In Nepal, when we were in Nepal, they have six seasons. Okay? I don't care what anybody says. Alaska has one season. It's winter. Okay? I don't care if it's 30 degrees, zero, negative 80. It's cold. It's winter. My point in that, though, is that everyone's season looks different. You could get cancer at the age of 27 and have cancer for the rest of your life and then die. That's the season. You could just live. God trials you. God tests you. And, and then you go into a season of not that. But I'll, t I'll tell you this. Uh, so I did some research on this whole vineyard thing. Most vineyards last 50 to 100 years. That's how long they last. So imagine a man. I'm praying to meet one. Imagine a man who is 100 years old who has just been pruned his whole life. You could probably taste the fruit just by talking to him. He would be so just filled with the Spirit and filled with Christ. So it's this process of cutting off anything that would affect the maximum amount of fruit and the quality of fruit. It's good fruit. It's not sour fruit. It's not wild grapes. Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now, I get it. This verse does apply to your earthly parents, your mother and your father here on earth. You need to honor them. But at the same token, it also applies to God the Father. God is our Father. We are to honor Him. The issue is, is that we don't like to be pruned. And so we don't want to submit to our Father. He, he's chosen a painful means of us bearing fruit. This cutting in order to bear fruit, thereby glorifying His name. Be honest, we just, we just don't like to submit to it. As humans, it's natural for us to resist things that are uncomfortable and that are painful. Except for people who get tattoos. I don't know what their issue is. But no, it's, it's natural for us to resist pain and not to just run to pain. This, this is why salvation is so essential. If you're not indwelled, if you're not saved, there's going to be no submitting. It's, it's not going to happen. You're not going to... Abide in the Father, to let the Father prune you. So, here, here's the thing. Bearing fruit, it's not going to be enjoyable. Pretty much all the time, it's not going to be enjoyable. I don't know anybody who is just chipper all the time and who bears a lot of fruit. Like, I, I mean, if they had this joy that's rooted in Christ, I get it, but you know that guy I'm talking about. The guy that just walks around happy and smiley all the time and like nothing ever happens to him. Okay, I'll forget it. Um, so, 
It's going to be painful. And here's the thing. I would, I would encourage you not to choose the other route. Don't choose the route that is not painful. Don't choose the route that is not being pruned. Submit to the Father. Because <coughs> if you are, are not going through trials, or if you are going through trials, and, and it's your father, the vine dresser, doing this. Your father loves you. He's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, he will bear fruit. Second Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Is preparing. Romans 5.3-4, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James 1, 2-3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, and you're meeting trials, and you're meeting sufferings or, or persecution, and you're abiding, that's good news, because number one, it's showing evidence of your faith. So you should gain assurance from that if that's happening and if you are abiding. And number two, you're in the process of being perfected and complete and lacking nothing. That's what James is telling us. Now, all of these verses, they don't sound like us at all. They don't sound like me. And I've met a few people that these verses sound like. We do not see rejoicing often in our sufferings. We do not count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. You know, I think of Acts 5, 40 through 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is crazy. You get the, just the snot beat out of you. You go out, you high five, and then you go back doing what you were doing, preaching the gospel. It's just what got you beat. But rejoicing because they know their Savior. It's this reality. Most of the time, we, we grumble. We don't submit ourselves to the trials. We, we grumble about the trials that we are put in. And I do this, so I'm not picking on you if you say this, uh, but I'm just pointing it out. Most of the time, we grumble, which is usually followed up, I'm not complaining or anything. And I think to myself, sounds to me like you just show, showed the trueness of your heart. I mean, I do it. I'm not throwing stones here, but I'm just saying we should stop. So... Most of you, and if not yet, you will be, are in very real situations that are very hard. They're going to be tough, and they might seem like they're going to last forever. And they might. I watched a video the other day, actually. A little girl got cancer at four, leukemia. She died. That's the fall. You could get cancer and you could die. You could go somewhere and be killed. You could go somewhere and your family be killed. You could lose your wife. You could lose your husband. You could lose a child. 
So those who, who don't know us uh, and those who do know this story are probably tired of hearing this story, but God has been very good to my family and me through this whole process. Um, back in May, we had our lives shifted. Um, I decided to leave Toyota in Princeton, Indiana. I took a $22,543.50 pay cut. I know because I did the math last night. Uh, took a massive pay cut. Um, went to work, gave my two weeks, quit. Got a call at 2 a.m. that my wife's mother had passed away. In that process, and at that time, our lives shifted. Your lives will shift at some point in time. Don't fight that. Abide in Christ. So when that happened, we got two awesome Wonderful girls, India and Asia. I'm going to put them on the spot. Um, so, in one day, we, $22,543.50 pay cut, new job, to take a day shift job, because it would be very good for my family. My wife's mother passed away. Our household went from three to five. I'm not trying to ramble, but mother didn't have life insurance. We paid for funeral costs. Let me tell you something. God has been so good and so gracious, even in the hard times. And you want to know why? Because he's a good father. He's the father, the vine dresser, pruning you. It's for good. Point three is fruit. So what is fruit? Verse 7 of John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we see an example here of fruit being that of prayer and my words are ask whatever you wish. So the question would be, well, what is prayer that is fruitful? What is fruitful prayer? And if you look at verse 7 again, and my words abide in you. If you are praying the things that God has revealed to you in his holy scriptures, that is fruit, not health, not wealth, not prosperity. Lifting up prayers of thankfulness, of praise, of worship, intercession, but also letting your needs be known to God. A lot of times we've like got this weird thing of, I don't want to ask for stuff. God is a good father. We ask our earthly fathers for things. He's a better father. Ask him for things so that he can receive double glory. That for answering the prayers and that for giving the gifts. He's just glorified more than the things that you ask him. Just make sure that they're in boundaries of Scripture. Some people, I've had some people say to me, I don't know how to pray, or uh, I'm not good at praying. It's a really self-centered focus, but that's not what I'm going to talk about. What I am going to talk about, though, is open up your Bible. If you open up your Bible and you read, pray back the things that God teaches you in His Word. God has chosen His Word to talk to you, to reveal to you. And prayer is our means to talk with him. It's back and forth, back and forth. And so what mine looks like is I open my scripture, and I look at it, and I say, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. That's what it looks like most of the time, because I just don't add up to what scripture lays down. Just don't add up. 
but it also is thankfulness. Father, thank you for Jesus. So maybe you read scripture, maybe you come to just something amazing that God's all-knowing or that God created everything. And then you turn around, praise God, worship God for his creation, his all-knowingness. So his words is the means to talk to us and our prayer is our means to talk with him back and forth. Another is following the commandments that God has laid out for his church. Verse 10 of John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Keeping the commandments that God has set out for you. So this, isn't, this one's not directly in the context of John 15, but sensitivity to our sin. If someone has a sensitivity towards sin, their sin, and even others' sin, that's fruit being produced in them. Another is uh, repentance and confession. Now, don't get these confused. Many times people confess and confess, and they never repent. They confess sin to you, confess sin to you, confess sin to you. They don't repent. I'm guilty of this, by the way. I'm not throwing stones, like I said. But there are two different things, both essential, but two different things. A confession is, first and foremost, praying and confessing to God, Father, I have sinned against you. The next one is, if you've sinned against a brother or sister, or maybe it's not even a brother or sister, maybe it's an unbeliever, you go to them and you say, will you forgive me? I've sinned against you in this way. And explicitly say it. Don't beat around the bush. A lot of times we like to beat around the bush and say, I'm sorry. Like, ask for forgiveness. A repentance is a turning away from sin and looking to Jesus. Which is also, you can't do it without salvation. You have to be empowered. Another one is walking in the light, and you're reflecting how Christ walked. Another one is a relationship with God's Word. Here's the thing. I've never had anybody who is not a Christian come up to me and just go, man, I love John 15. The metaphors they use with the vine and the vine dresser and the branches, I love it. Don't understand it, don't believe it, but love it. Never met that. If you meet someone who says, I love Scripture, I had this conversation the other day, actually, this person just like, I never like to read. All of a sudden, I love to read. That was my story. I didn't finish a book through middle school or high school. Become a Christian, boom, popping out books left and right. Just reading them. That's, a, that's work by the Spirit. That's not work by me. Another one is habitual obedience. And this can follow underneath the commandments. There's this, there's this reality of you're consistently walking. And you're consistently obeying. Not perfection. Not claiming perfection at all. But just a consistent obedience to God and God's word. The commandment I would like to spend most of my time on uh, here at the end is, uh, is that we are to love. One of the truest signs of a Christian is that they love. And I'm not talking about what our culture defines love as. I'm talking about what love looks like in the boundaries of Scripture. The ultimate true definition of love is in the Scriptures. But to be specific, I'm going to talk about love towards the brothers and the sisters. God is saved. In 1 John 2, 9-11, Whoever says he is in the light 
and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This right here in John is, is very good evidence of, of salvation in a, in a believer. That, that you've been born again, that you've been regenerated, that your life is marked by love. If, if you have just time today, take 30 minutes of your day. Go home, read 1 John. It's five chapters. That's it. Go home, read 1 John. And honestly, if none of your life is marked by that which is in 1 John, it's a safe bet to say that you're not bearing fruit and that you're not saved. That's why you need to read it. Because if you are a Christian, all it's going to do is give you assurance. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that God would save you in that moment. And that then you would look like 1 John, look like what it gives you. Verse 11 of 1 John, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. So there's this reality that if you have this habitual uh, hostility or this anger or friction toward brothers and sisters, like that person that just can't get along with anybody, there's just something, they did this, they did this, and it's really them. Um, if you had that, like, you need to repent of that. That's a sin. But let me ask this, though, too. It, if you don't hate, because a lot of us might fall in the neutral section. Well, I don't hate anybody. I don't have that anger that you're speaking of. But that's not the commandment. The commandment is love. Just because you don't hate doesn't mean that you love. I can be very neutral with someone. I can front it all day long. So can you. That's just the reality. So what is, what is an end goal of the Christian life? It is to be like Jesus. That's what pruning is doing. It's making you more and more like Christ, the one who suffered, the one who was persecuted, the one who was tempted but did not fail. It's a transforming a life that once had hostility and hatred toward God to loving God and loving sinners such as the one that he saved, meaning you, meaning me. What better, what better way to show that than to love like Jesus loves? You can have all prophetic power and understanding of all mysteries and knowledge, and if you have faith so to move mountains, but you have not love, you are nothing. 1 Corinthians 13. You could have all other gifts, but it doesn't matter if you don't love. So how do we love? We love like Jesus loves. Jesus is the standard. Jesus, when he came into the scene on the New Testament, fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled it. And the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's funny though, because we will preach this. We will sit under teachings of this. We will sing songs of praise and mercy and of grace. And then we will act like complete snakes to our wives and to our husbands and to our brothers and to our sisters. And the loving thing, it gets harder the more you know someone. Like I said earlier, you can be front with someone who doesn't, who you don't know. But the more you get to know someone well, love starts becoming harder 
and harder. So I'm going to say something that either A, you already know, or B, that you will know. Uh, marriage is about conforming you to the image of Jesus. I heard no amens, and that's a good thing. Save you some trouble when you go home. It is a life of the vine dresser working on the outside and pruning you. Because that person doesn't meet up to the standards that you've set. But God in marriage is showing you how to love someone. Romans 3, 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Passed over your sins. This is how we must live in marriage, we must look over the sins of that who you're married to. Sometimes it's not even sins. It's just things that annoy you. I'm not bashing marriage, by the way. I love my marriage. Like, that's what it sounds like up here. I'm not doing that. But that's what it is. It's a forbearance for that person's sin. We must look over it. Because the reality is, is that you both married sinners. It's going to be messy. But try to, try to look and pray that your heart would be changed to look at your wife, to look at your husband, how Christ sees his bride. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians 1.22. That's how we should look at our spouse. But not only in marriage, but in the context of the church. And even our enemies. We are to love our enemies. We must love. And I know saying that to some of y'all, some of y'all have been hurt by people, and, uh, and that's just a reality. And I'm telling you to love, I'm telling you to love your enemies, love those who have done bad things to you. Um, and, and you might say, and I'm not trying to be insensitive to this, but, well, you don't know what they've done to me. I know that you're not crucified. Jesus Christ was crucified. And he loved. We must love. 1 John 3.14 says, Whoever does not love abides in death. You abide in death if you do not love. And you have this habitual sin of hatred and anger. If you do not love, I can rightly say to you, like Jesus says to the Jews in John 8, 44, that you are of your father, the devil, because you're not saved. You're outside of the vine. So now what? Uh, verse 9, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide. Even that word, though, um, abide, creates something in us where we think we have to go home and read the Bible in 30 days or read all 260 chapters of the New Testament tonight to make sure that your life matches up to all the commandments that are in the New Testament. I know this. I know the 260 because I've tried to do this. I know your mind. Or to go home and I'm going to memorize 1 John 
cold. I'm not going to drink coffee. I'm not going to do nothing. I'm just going to sit down and pound this thing out. All you're doing is placing burdens on your shoulders that are not meant to be there. That's it. Here's the thing. I would encourage you to do all those things if you're able to. If you're in a season where you're able to do that, do that. If you're not, don't. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to make a point that as people, we are wired to hear this and then go home and try to fix ourselves. Because I'm telling you, abide, 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 abide. And you're thinking, I got to abide. I got to do stuff. It's not what I'm saying. Here, here's the thing. It's, you're thinking to yourself as if you could force yourself to love in the way that I just told you to love. The way the scriptures tell you to love that you could go home and you could do that. You have to be saved. There has to be an empowerment. There has to be a regeneration of the heart so that you can love in that way. Our only hope of godly character is the great God-man Jesus Christ. Trust in him for your salvation. Trust in him for the power to obey his commands. Trust in him to create in you godly character. Trust that his love is more powerful than your love because honestly, to me, it just seems impossible. And when you fail, trust in the sufficiency of his grace. Believer, Christian, trust in Jesus. Unbeliever, Trust in Jesus. As a believer, you need Jesus just as much as you do today than you did when you weren't saved. Let's pray.